Hey, and welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Joining me on the other end is Jeff Bunza. Now, Jeff did the uh, Aethern Crane animation in the August articles. So I'm just going to talk to Jeff a little bit further about his animation. So, Jeff, welcome uh, to the segment. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. It's great to be here with you, too. Okay. Now, uh, Jeff's up in Portland. Uh, he and I were just talking. Uh, he had, used to live in Scottsdale, so he's a Valley of the Sun guy. Uh, <laughs> At one time. Now, how about just a little background for the people that are listening that may not have read the article? You know, who's Jeff? How'd you get into the model railroading? Okay, my background is in uh, electronic systems design. I uh, I taught uh, back east at MIT for a while, uh, worked uh, designing computers for Digital Equipment Corporation, then automatic test systems for a company called Genrad, then came out west uh, into Portland, Oregon, uh, ran a big operation for a design automation company called Mentor Graphics, started a bunch of companies after that, and... Uh, uh, started and sold a couple, and now I'm uh, consulting and doing a little bit of writing. I got into model railroading when uh, I received a, a typical train set, an uh, old Mantua train set, uh, when I was probably six or seven. Uh, it stuck with me since. It's been a lifelong hobby and just uh, grew and grew and grew. In fact, the hobby was what got me into electronics, believe it or not. So the hobby actually wound up strongly influencing my career field. Along the way, I had a couple of of things that, that influenced my interest in animation, which is kind of the thing that, that carries me in part in the hobby. I took my kids to see uh, uh, Disneyland, and in Disneyland there was a an exhibit of Abraham Lincoln getting up and, and giving uh, an address. And it was, uh, oh, God, I think that they started that probably in the 60s. But it was, an, uh, anima- they called it animatronics. It was very realistic. I was thoroughly blown away and impressed. And always remembered how uh, big an impression that, that uh, gave me. Also, uh, when I was young, I was given uh, Lionel H.O. trains, which I still collect. And they, of course, had a lot of animated cars. Uh, they were some of the more interesting ones to me. And I always, uh, anytime I visited a uh, O-scale layout, particularly Lionel, they always had the um, the uh, animated uh, uh, accessories, particularly the crossing signals and gates. And I was always fascinated by that and the interaction with the trains. That got me into wanting to do more in animation, uh, not just see the trains move. And when sound came into the hobby, that basically pushed it over the edge for me. And I started combining more and more electronics, which is my, my career background, with my hobby, and started experimenting uh, with a number of different things. And eventually that led me uh, to try things like... Uh, uh, surface mount device micro LEDs started experimenting with smaller and smaller motors and it, it just kept going even to this day um, my background in systems design 
uh, was always involved, at least in part, with sensors. That is really kind of my next phase that I'm incorporating into my models. Uh, there'll probably be stuff coming coming out in the, the coming years uh, about that, too. I've got some things in the hopper there. Anyway, that's how I got to where I am. Okay. So we have Disney to thank for sparking your interest in that. You bet. And because I, so I read the article, I just wondered, I thought, well, where would you even go to find motors and stuff like that that you use, like, for the uh, the cable winches? Great, great question. And, in fact, I have been collecting smaller and smaller motors and gearboxes for years uh, and always wanted to do something like the crane and only found those motors with that gearbox, oh, gosh, about... Oh, maybe a year, uh, maybe a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, and that has just enabled me to play with all kinds of new things. Those and the, the little pager motors, which are almost close to worthless by itself because they have very little torque, but they can be reconfigured to do some interesting things. So there's a whole nother world out there. Um, I don't know how far back you go. But if you remember the old Pittman motors that uh, were some of the best quality motors, the open frame motors, but some of the Pittmans were very large. Uh, there was another Japanese motor, I think, that was an open frame. It was very, very large as well. KMT used to use it. And Ken Kidder had it in some models. Um, at the time, they were some of the better motors that are around. Now with uh, coreless motors, with Swiss motors, uh, a wide range of uh, Japanese motors that are very well made, uh, y y the door opens for lots and lots of possibilities that, frankly, when I first started in the hobby, they, uh, it would be almost impossible to do. Um, yet, I've gone back and read some of the old model magazines, and there were attempts to do some kinds of animations way back into the the uh, 50s. And I think there was actually an article in the late 40s where people were interested in animating things beyond the moving locomotive. Uh, but right now, we're I think we're just on the cusp of um, a lot more being done in the area than, than we've ever seen before. Okay. Now, aside from the, the crane, uh, have you... Animated other things on your model railroad? I have. Um, my, my, uh, to say that on my model railroad is a misnomer. We, we just moved a few years ago, and I'm rebuilding my, my layout. So it's in a, uh, a state of uh, complete mess right now. Uh, that's a technical term, of course. Um, I have done things like um, oh, the traditional opening a door, um, activating a crossing gate, um, there's a, an article I submitted to Model Railroad Hobbyist. I don't know when they're going to schedule it. Uh, it's actually a takeoff on a very old uh, article in Model Railroader by John, I think it's by John Armstrong, who took a full-size motor back then, which was, I think, in the 50s, might have been earlier, and used it to turn the head of an engineer who had his head kind of uh, reaching out the window of the locomotive. 
And I just thought that that was so cool. Um, I have uh, redone that using a very, very small cordless vibrator motor uh, and uh, wired it in a way that when the uh, locomotive is moving forward, the engineer turns his head and looks forward. When it's moving in reverse, he turns his head back and, and uh, looks in, uh, towards the rear. Relatively simple thing, but it's kind of cool when you see it. And a lot of the things I find... Uh, even a video doesn't really do it justice. When you see them on, the, on a layout and it catches your eye and it's like, wow, I, I, how, did, how, did, how did that happen? Uh, those are the kinds of things I love to do. Right now I'm working on some other things uh, using electronics to animate uh, different scenes. I have a, kind of a different view of animation. I, I look at a layout as a collection of small self-controlled scenes uh, where each little scene tells a small story. There's been a whole series of layouts, I think, presented in a number of different magazines, and some of them are just terrific, just unbelievable work. But the ones that really catch my eye are the ones where you move a little farther along the layout, and it's another little scene where there's a group of people or, you know, there may be wreckage of some sort or there may be a storefront. And around the locale of each of those, there's a small story to be told. And to me, that is kind of what I'm trying to do all over my layout, except I want each of the stories to be animated. It, it may prove useful for me to define what I mean by animation. Animation consists of five pieces, uh, sound, movement, light or lighting, uh, synchronization of those, meaning you have a coordination between a movement, the sound it might create, uh, the lighting in the scene, which may or may not be indicative of the movement. They all have to be coordinated so that it looks like the right thing is happening. It looks real. There's another thing, though, and it's something that I discovered after giving a couple of clinics. Uh, I had an article in MRH February of this year, 2012, about using uh, surface mount device LEDs, LEDs, to make very, very small lights and different things, and showed in a couple of cases a HO scale figure holding a lantern that was lit, and it was all to scale. And when I gave the clinic on how to do that, because uh, I've done that a couple of times now at NMRA meets, just to keep track of it and to add, oh, uh, I guess a tiny bit of humor. I had two different poses, two different figures doing different things. I could have referred to them as the man with the red lantern and the guy with the, the blue lantern, because that's what they had. But instead, I called them Fred and Barney. And the funny thing happened, uh, as I referred to them as Fred and Barney, uh, here's how you attach this to Fred, here's how you attach this to Barney, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the clinic, everybody in every question that I got relative to them asked me, well, how do you do this with Fred? How do you do this with Barney? It wasn't how you do this with the guy with the red lantern or how do you do this with the guy with the blue lantern. I don't know why, because I was using the names already, but it just struck me as odd that that would catch on and that would be something that people enjoyed referring to. And what I found out the more I got into it is that 
I told about because uh, I had one figure holding a blue lantern, and uh, my example was telling a story about implementing Rule 26, which is a general rule on a railroad that if you put a blue flag out or a blue lantern at night or a blue light at night. The train can't be moved because it indicates that men are working on it. And so there was a story that, that went with the figure with the blue lantern. That was Barney. It turned out that that had a big impact and a far bigger impact than I thought it was going to have. It really stuck with me. So when I started to do the crane, and the obvious thing when you do animation is you'd like to produce a video because there is movement and light and synchronization and sound and all that. I decided that I uh, had first done the video and realized that with no captions or nothing else, you didn't really know what to look for because there are some subtle things in the video to look for. If there's a small light that comes on, you'd want to be able to point it out. But instead of just saying, and you no, know, the light comes on, I put it to a story. And it, it had such an impact with the people that saw the video, including, by the way, a lot of people who had no connection with modeling. It had such an impact with them that I said, well, I bet I can put a story behind this. And hence the video with the story of uh, re-railing the, the locomotive with the crane. And the interesting thing with that video is that all of the sound is, is, is actually generated only by the models. There's no overdubbing or video manipulation in, in the, the crane video. The models themselves are the ones generating all the sounds. There's a follow-on to that as well. All of the sounds, in fact, are recordings of real steam cranes. They're actually, most of the sounds come from a 120-ton steam crane in Brooks, Oregon. It was an old SPMW crane. The only thing that doesn't come from that crane is the single-chime whistle, which is always coming out in three toots, toot, toot, toot. And that, I think, comes from, I can't remember where that came from. Either there was a steam crane in Canada or in Vermont, and I don't remember which one I, it, I got it from. But I just happened to like the sound of that triple toot, so I used that in, in the, uh, the, the sound files that were in the, uh, the DCC decoder. But the, the point was that it was the story that kind of threaded everything together, and I got even stronger reactions from people that saw the video. So, very long-winded way of saying, anytime I look at animation, I now always look at uh, sound, movement, light, synchronization, and the story behind it. And that's what I'm trying to do on the layout I'm building, is uh, lots of people you know, build small scenes on their layout that I think really enhance uh, the interest in the layout. I'm trying to do that with animated scenes. Um, and just to make it, take it to the, the, uh, the nth level, um, this, in, in the, the scenes that I'm building for the layout, the scenes themselves will be autonomous, meaning uh, every once in a while they'll come to life, something will happen, uh, sound, light, motion, uh, synchronization, little story, and then it'll stop. It'll it'll kind of go silent. Uh, the interesting thing is that what I'm trying to do is um, also have it interact with what happens around it in two ways. One is if a train comes by, it may do something completely different. So, for example, if there's activity on a loading dock 
and I push a, a car in front of the loading dock, the activity in the animation is going to change. Uh, think about, I've got a scene at a grade crossing, and obviously when a train passes, you'd like the lights to flash on the signals, and you'd like the, the gates to come down if there are any gates at the crossing. So there's interaction with the train and the, the local animation in, in the scene. That's what I'm trying to do, but with lots of different little scenes. Um, and I said there was one other proviso with that. Um, I also think that if, if a person comes by uh, and say that there's a house with some activity in front of it or a factory or something, and a person walks in front of it, well, there are ways to detect that. And what I want to do is either the scene to wake up and do something or maybe even interact with the person. Uh, so those are the kinds of ideas that I'm playing with moving forward. When you mentioned having the locomotive engineer's head turn uh, to be consistent with the direction of the locomotive, right? is that H.O. scale? That's H.O. scale. No kidding. No kidding. All right, so intended like for a yard switch crew where you'd... The first, the first uh, uh, engine I put him into was a, an Athern GP9 diesel. Okay. Well, that, that, that's amazing. It, it, is, it is just so cool to watch. You know, I, what I like to do is to, is to catch people by surprise that come by and have a look. And I ask them, do you notice anything when I do this? <laughs> and uh, it's just a lot of fun to see the reaction because they're not expecting it. Okay, and then, of course, I guess you could take a passenger car and have the conductor poke his head out the, uh, the door. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, a fellow uh, in Australia named Laurie McLean, and he positions brakemen on the back deck of his cabooses, uh, swinging a lantern up and down. The arm movement goes up and down, and the lantern is lit. I always think that I'm going to try that sometime, but I just haven't gotten to that point. But it's that kind of thing. And it, it, the interesting thing with, with these is really the, the movement is tiny. And we'll continue our conversation with Jeff Bunza in a later episode where we look at the potential for sound improvements in model railroading. Hey, listeners, be on the lookout. The November issue of the Model Railroad Hobbyist is on the way. Things to look for it is articles on making tons of trees fast, an easy Conrail caboose kit bash, and an aisle lift out bread. Coming in the November issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist. Okay, and now we're gonna be uh touching base with uh Richard Bale, who handles all the uh product news in Model Railroad Hobbyist. So Richard's on the line with me. So uh Richard, welcome to the segment. Hi, Paul. Nice to be with you. Well, tell you what, I saw uh, the uh, piece in the latest uh, MRA about the price reduction that had been announced by uh, Athern on their Norfolk Southern uh, AC4400 uh, heritage unit. Where did that come from? Well, that's a, you're starting off with a pretty good question, Paul. We're not entirely sure of that. The, uh, the reason given by Athern was that they had, they had added the Norfolk Southern Heritage Group to an existing order that they had already placed, and that the increased quantity gave them a little more leverage, improvement on the price. Well, normally I think that would that would be an acceptable response, but in this case, it it dropped so significantly from it dropped thirty dollars from one hundred and forty nine to one twenty nine, and that's that's a huge drop. So 
there may be some other things working in there that, that we're not sure of. And, of course, the, the pressure is always there on all manufacturers about the competitive situation. The Norfolk Southern Heritage Group, both the locomotives, the, the EMD unit and the uh, General Electric unit, they both have uh, suddenly become extremely popular uh, in addition to what Athern has announced uh, Bachman just jumped in recently. I think they announced theirs at the at the iHobby trade show in October in Cleveland. And presumably Bachman's going to be very aggressive on the pricing. Now they're they're uh, detailing and adherence to you know, real hard nosed prototype details might not be quite as good as Athern, but uh, Bachman has got such a you know they're so big they have they have so much cloud in China they could really come up and uh, and really kind of muddy things up by I shouldn't say muddying up, but they should make it interesting by by introducing the the heritage locomotives. We haven't heard from Walters, but I wouldn't be surprised if they uh, if they decided to jump in. Another candidate is Fox Valley. Now they make an ES44 AC, but they have not announced these new NS heritage paint schemes. So it could be easy for them. However, one of the problems that manufacturers are going to face on this locomotive is that. There's all these different paint schemes, and with the quality of the paint mask and all the detailing that is done nowadays, or it's expected nowadays, that's an expensive proposition for only uh, for one road number. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch. And, of course, there's Bowser, although they're all usually a little cautious about getting into the competitive water. So we'll have to watch all of this very closely. It should be quite interesting. Okay. Now, because the... Uh You've got the 70 Ace and then the, the Jeevo, or the, the real-life ones. Intermountain makes a Jeevo. Would you think that it might be logical for them to paint up a few? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I should have mentioned Intermountain. They're definitely going to be uh, be in the mix. No question about it. Okay. Someone mentioned, someone mentioned to me that, um, um, you know, all of a sudden everyone is jumping into this thing, and it's, maybe this is the new F7. Everyone's going to make it, but but uh, it's going to be tough to make any money on it. And of course, at the very high end, uh, um, Overland has announced some uh, some brass imported versions, so it's going to be interesting. Okay, but Overland's what north of eight hundred dollars? I'm sure. I'm sure. Typically, yeah. Yeah, it'll it'll be real museum stuff. Yeah, it's a beautiful locomotive. We've had a few at the hobby shop, but yeah, they are not inexpensive. Well. You know, then this, you know, related begs the question, just how big of a customer is Athern over there uh, for the Chinese uh, manufacturing group? Well, they're very important. Um, the big guy, of course, is Bachman. Bachman is huge. Bachman is, uh, is so big worldwide that uh, there's almost no one at second place. Mm -hmm. um, in, in my judgment, uh, Athern and Atlas and Walters are about the same level in terms of, uh, of units coming out of China. Um, Athern, um, Athern has a lot of clout, but um, the Chinese are, are very interesting the way they play it close to the vest, and uh, no matter how big you are, they, uh, they don't mind saying no to you. They do it their own way, and, and frankly, they do a wonderful job. If you look at if you look at the kind of models we're getting today out of out of China, they're 
you know, they're just gorgeous. Uh, some of the things that they're doing are amazing. But Bachman is the big guy. Bachman is, uh, you know, without doing any quick math, Bachman is probably uh, five to six to seven times bigger than uh, people like Athern and Atlas and Walters. And it's all led by, by Thomas the Train, which is a great cash cow, and they do almost a million units a, a year on that. Okay. And uh, I'll edit this out. I wanted to look. Because uh, Bachman is actually owned by, what, the largest uh, Chinese uh, manufacturing conglomerate? It's one of their wholly owned subsidiaries? That's correct. Yeah. Um, there's a company called um, uh, Cater. Actually, Cater is uh, is owned by, by a holding company. But, but Cater... Um, it owns Sandican, which is the manufacturing arm uh, that produces the trains. Cater also owns Bachman, uh, Bachman World, Worldwide. Uh, an interesting thing to note, uh, you know, as long as we're talking about the Chinese at the moment, in the summer of 2010, Sandican dropped all of their customers except Bachman, which was a real shock to to the industry, and people really had to do some scrambling. Well, that was done in the summer of 2010, and at the same time, the company founder, uh, Ken Ting, T-I-N-G, he appointed his son as the new managing director. Well, just uh, just last month, Ken Ting, the father, um, removed his son. He's no longer the, the head of the company. So we're not sure how well that is going or whether, you know, it has any uh, impact on, uh, going to have any impact on the model railroad business, but it's, it is interesting to uh, kind of know that that has taken place. What do you hear because when all of a sudden Atlas and Athern, just to name a few, were left high and dry with parts of their product lines, there were a lot of business stories about the upheaval of the middle class within China, uh, everything from the migration of, you know, that worker base from the rural provinces into the larger cities for the opportunities and income. Is that is that stabilized? I mean, do you hear that that's still in turmoil or I wouldn't call it I wouldn't call it stabilized from what I have learned and I, I have uh, tried to watch it fairly closely and uh, have read uh, a couple of books recently uh, from some experts in the field. But I don't know that it is stabilized. Perhaps we wouldn't call it that, but it may be stabilized as far as the Chinese are concerned. And I wouldn't call it turmoil. There, there's there's a, a worldwide manufacturing revolution going on, and China's leading that uh, leading that in in a great way. Um, it's uh, model railroading, of course. You know, the toy business is a is just a very small puny uh, portion of that. But things that are going on in China. Are just uh, they're just jaw dropping. They're just it's unbelievable what's taking place over there. Sadly, I think. Well, how about an example? Because you said that's almost like a revolution, and China is leading it. In what way? Well, China is becoming is will soon become the uh, the largest manufacturing nation uh, in the world, and the U.S. has already has always held that. But China is has become the great supplier of manufactured goods of all sorts. For most of the uh, for most of the world, there's always uh, some fellows talking about you know maybe we ought to be able to get the 
model railroad industry back to the United States. I would love to see that happen, but I don't see that, that it's going to take place. There are so many limitations involved in reinventing of the wheel here in this country. We've really lost our ability to manufacture. Uh, some of the regulations have made it almost impossible for, for train manufacturers to, uh, to do any kind of in-house painting or decorating. Tooling costs have gone absolutely, uh, you know, sky high. Um, China is doing some amazing things, and I'm not a, necessarily a big fan, and I'm not uh, patting them on the back, but it is amazing what the what they are accomplishing over there. There's a lot of a lot of lower quality things coming out of there as well, uh, mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that we see at a Walmart. I'm talking about merchandise in general, but they can also bear down and do some pretty uh, pretty amazing stuff. You know, Athens Genesis series being an example of that. I mean, that's beautiful stuff. Yes, it is. And uh, we just got several sets of uh, A and B uh, PA units from MTH in the hobby store. And just uh, especially on the uh, Santa Fe's, the uh, side number boards are even lit up. First time I've ever seen a modeler light up the Santa Fe side uh, number boards, you know, just past the cab. So bright headlights. Uh, I know that MTH designs and set the criteria, but in support of your point, the Chinese were excellent in the uh, interpretation and execution of that locomotive. They're not the easiest people to deal with, but most of the, most American firms are learning how to do it to their advantage. Sadly, the the model railroad industry that we're all interested in is, um, I don't want to say that we are unsophisticated, but we're kind of far down on the totem pole when it comes to dealing with some of the manufacturers. We talk in terms of you know, 10,000 or 20,000 of something, 30,000 in a run, 30,000 being a pretty big number, they're capable of turning out 100,000 or 200,000 of any kind of product you want to mention. They're they're attuned to extremely high volume, and uh, model railroaders tend to be uh, fairly low volume, but very, very picky about, uh, about the end product. I mean, we really are spoiled now, and we expect to see these uh, beautiful kinds of models all the time. Well, and just, you know, you mentioned uh, 10,000 of this and so forth. I've heard some of our manufacturers and uh, conversations I've had with them where they look at a specific model and they'll base a go, no-go decision on can I do 500 units because it's a niche market and that market segment is willing to pay whatever that mathematical price comes out to be just to get it. Some of the guys are making that, let's call it low demand or lower demand, you know, profitable form. Thank goodness. Well, you're you're uh, you're more accurate than I am. I was being a bit generous when I talked about twenty thousand. Um, and I, you know, the the, uh, the numbers in model railroading uh, are, are relatively small. And especially within the context of the manufacturing. Uh... Right. Exactly. And that's why that's why uh, Thomas the train is. Is the great exception in our hobby. Now, I know most of us are not interested in Thomas the Train, although our, you know, it's a good way to get our kids and our, and the younger folks interested in it. But if you take, um, you know, you just take a real quick look at, at, at w- what the market is out there for Thomas the Train, you've got almost 9,000 Walmart stores, you've got probably 600 Kmart, 1,700 Target, you know, and then there's Toys R Us and there's Sears and, and, and if those guys sell, and I'm being I'm being very conservative here. Let's say they sell 25 set Thomas the Train sets throughout the year, and then they sell another 25 in December. 
that's that's 50 train sets, 50 Thomases times about 13,000 stores. There's nothing like that in model railroading. That that is completely unique. Nobody nobody runs 250 or 300,000 pieces uh, other than the Thomas. But it's a uh, it's an interesting product. It's an interesting phenomena. The marketing is well done. The product is well made. It's considering that it gets beat up by you know four year olds. It it's fairly reliable. And, but it gives it gives Bachman a lot of flexibility in terms of exploring other products or in helping to uh, convince the bean counters that they need uh, you know another twenty five thousand dollars for tooling of another item. So Bachman is in is in a unique position as far as our hobby is concerned. Well, and and to to your point that going back to your comments on their jumping in the uh, heritage market with a 70 uh, Ace, if you've looked at their Schnabel car, which is under their sub-brand of Spectrum, that is one well-made, well-detailed car. The railings, the cab windows, the handbrake assemblies, when you look at that car up close, and I have because we special ordered uh, one in for a guy. Bachman did themselves proud on that. You know, I could see them coming out with a real stunning piece on their Heritage uh, 70 Ace. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, they they do have that capability, I, and I have seen that car you mentioned, uh, that Schnabel, and it is uh, it's an amazing car. There, there's another thing that's happened with with Athern um, just very recently that I might mention. They have, um, of course, they're owned by Horizon which is a distributor, and when you're in the distributor business, like Walther's and Intermountain, you, uh, the basis of your, of your success is a, a very healthy dealer base. Athern has just announced, uh, perhaps you've heard about this, the police version of the, uh, the Southern Pacific C50, I believe it's the Dash 7, caboose. And the police version, uh, I think there's a couple of white models in there. And they're painted a very stark white, and there's also a Union Pacific rebrand. But that whole group of, of police cabooses will be sold by Athern only to storefront hobby stores. It will not be sold to anyone who does not have an in-store support, which is an interesting move on their part, um, somewhat counter to what uh, Exact Rail did, uh, you know, a few months ago when they uh, when they went direct and uh, and bypassing or dropping their entire uh, dealer group. But I thought it was very interesting that Athern would make that move on behalf of their of their dealers and trying to support their dealers. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, yeah, support for the brick-and-mortar guys. I know, you know, Bob, who owns the store, faces that every day. I say hooray for Athern. That's what they do. Okay, well, that pretty much wraps up the uh, the news segment. I want to thank uh Richard, appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and I hope we can get together again soon. The December issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist will update a developing story involving the UN, NASA, and the House Ways and Means Committee, and it involves model railroading. No kidding. The UN apparently has approached NASA to help with a project slated for 2013 on the International Space Station. It's an experiment on how artificial atmosphere and low gravity would impact normal appliances. I guess they mean those that aren't designed, you know, to be used in space. And one of the items proposed as a test sample 
is a model railroad. Early posturing by the Speaker of the House indicated a preference for HO scale with DCC and sound, while the Senate Majority Leader's Office is rumored to counter in scale DC. Go figure. We'll keep you updated. As a side note, NASA is looking into 1950s era technology once marketed by Lionel called Magnatraction as a way of keeping the trains on the track. Look for Model Railroad Hobbyist in December for the latest information. Okay, and here we are with our uh, next segment, and on with me is Gary Polino. Gary is the uh, the owner and the, the motivation behind Train Tech LLC up in Boston. Uh, as he says, you're a train control specialist. So good to have you here today, Gary. Hi, Paul. Glad to be back again. All right. Today we're going to talk about uh, connections to the track. You know, whether it's DC or DCC, we've got to have power and connections to our track. So uh, on Gary's website, which is traintechllc.com, you're going to see a link to some illustrations that he's going to be talking about today, showing how, for instance, suitcase record or suitcase connectors and so forth. So, Gary, what are the key things that from your end, especially when you take into account DCC, what people need to do in getting the power properly connected to the track? Well, um, this is actually a great follow-up to uh, one of our last podcasts where we talked about wiring um, your layout. What we decided to do for our listeners is uh, create a follow-along. So if you go to our website, traintechllc.com, and click on the tech support section, you'll see a link to uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine uh, follow-along, which images and examples. Um, So this one here will be on the track feeder connections. And what you'll see is I made a mock-up of a section of track. And we actually take this to um, a lot of the shows that we go to. Uh, it really gives people a good visualization of, um, you know, thinking about how they're going to wire their layout. Um, so you can kind of take a look at that. You'll also see how we called out the power bus, uh, the suitcase con- connectors, and the track feeders. And the power bus, if you recall, is the heavier gauge wire. And typically in HO scale, we recommend a minimum of uh, 14 gauge. And that would come off of your DCC system. And uh, we recommend you follow along uh, right along the, the main line right underneath it, and that way you can drop your track feeders uh, directly below it, and uh, it makes it easy to crimp right in, right in place there. Um, and another important thing to remember is on the power bus, I think we had discussed before, is you don't want to make a big circle with the power bus and then loop it back onto itself. Um, you always want to make sure that they're separate. You can make a circle around the layout, but just don't join the ends together in any way because what you'll wind up doing is creating um, essentially a giant radio antenna, um, which can cause all kinds of weird things to um, disrupt the, the DCC uh, signal going through the rail. What we have um, in the segments on the, uh, the website there, too, as you can see in Figure 3, there's a typical tap connector. And uh, thanks to Paul for shooting some of these photographs for us on uh, his layout. Basically, it, it's, a, it's called a run-and-tap connector in the electrical world. And it's 
just what we're doing here. You uh, will slide the connector right onto a heavier gauge wire. Um, and as you, you guys will take a look in uh, figure four, you'll see the green wire is a heavier gauge wire, um, and that would represent your power bus. And uh, we want to let the, the heavier gauge wire do the work of transmitting the, the power and DCC signal, uh, whereas the, instead of the, the rails of the track, because the, the rails are, are basically a steel product, and that is not actually a very good conductor. So we want to let the, the wire network uh, do the work for us. And you'll see the, the little red wire in that connector. That is the, the uh, tap part of the uh, wiring connector, and that will run right up to the, uh, the, the piece of track that you're going to try to feed. Usually an HO scale, 22-gauge solid wire uh, works pretty well. And we like to see solid on the, on the track feeders because you can bend them and shape them in nice, and they fit right inside the, uh, the rail there. Um, and, uh, and that makes, uh, makes a nice, neat uh, termination. So now you've got your wires inside that connector, and we need to, we need to close it up. And basically, this is considered a, a run-and-tap connector, but they also refer to it as an insulation displacement connector, or IDC for short. If you see back in figure three there, you see that uh, metal blade that's kind of in the middle there? What we'll do is we're going to squeeze that down, and that will bite through the insulation and right into the copper conductor. And that's what actually ties those two pieces of wire together so that we, uh, we have got continuity for power up to the track. Um, and usually the easiest way to do this is with a pair of channel locks, or sometimes you might hear them referred to as water pump pliers. We've got a, an image there, and you can see that's, that's basically how I did my layout and how I did our uh, little sample here, is you get your wires in there, and you want to kind of hold them together, and take the uh, channel locks and hold them vertically right over that connector, and you're going to squeeze, and that that metal blade will slide right down in the slot and cut right into those wires and uh, make the connection that you need. When you're all set with it being crimped, you'll see there's a little plastic flap over uh, over the whole thing, and you'll just take that, fold it over, and it snaps right onto itself and makes a uh, makes an insulated connection. So it's a really, really handy way to um, to make these types of terminations and saves you a lot of work from stripping insulation and soldering. You certainly can do that, of course. Um, that would be the, you know, that would be the Cadillac of installations if you want to, you know, strip your insulation back on your power bus and connect your track feeder to that and solder it in place, and you, you'll never have a problem with it that way. And I have uh, done that, and the amount of scar tissue I have on my hands from <laughs> burning myself with solder it just goes up dramatically. Now, just a comment to the listeners, you can find uh, those type of connectors at everywhere from Harbor Freight, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, even it, Ace Hardware's have them. Yeah, we also offer them in, uh, in bulk, too. We buy them in, uh, in huge volumes from uh, one of our suppliers, and uh, we package them up. Um, so we offer them here. We also offer, and they're also available through supply houses as well, by 3M, uh, they make, we call it our deluxe crimp connector. And basically what the difference is, 
instead of having one single blade that cuts down into the insulation, is actually uh, two there, and they're, they're electrically tied connector together. And uh, when you do that, now you're actually biting into both wires in two places, so the odds of a, a failure in the connection is minimalized. Oh, okay. So you've got some uh, redundancy there. Okay, cool. If you, you know, especially if you're in an area that might be hard to work on later, or might be might be um, worth considering instead of all the cursing and moaning from crawling underneath the bench work to get to that far corner and. Um, but I will say the one the one big difference is they're probably twice the money, um, but you know they're they're very very good connectors. So they're, they're but they are available for those types of situations. Now let's talk uh, a little bit about how we're going to connect this feeder to the track. Let's go through that process. Okay, um, connecting from the power bus to the track. You know we we've always had to try to put. A number of feeders on our layouts uh, running DC analog um, to try to avoid that toy train effect where, you know, the, the further the train goes away from the transformer, it slows down and then speeds up as you get closer. Um, in addition to that, we still need to, to worry about that, but we also need to worry about transmitting that DCC signal through the rails. And this goes back to where I was saying that we're going to let the wire help do a lot of the work for us as opposed to the rail. So, um, we like to see every piece of flex track uh, with its own set of feeders. And um, on your turnouts, you know, the outside stock rails and then the closure rails. And um, and that, that helps maintain good continuity through there. You know, you also want to consider powering your frogs, but that's uh, another subject that we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, down the road. And that helps with um, a lot of trouble-free operation later. It's a little bit more work up front, but you definitely will have uh, more successful op sessions without um, incident. Okay. Now, is there, uh, you know, a special solder that you want to use when you're, you know, going in and soldering to the uh, the web of the rail? What's your thoughts on that? You um, you definitely want to use a rosin core based. Uh, solder and flux. You, you don't um, you don't want to use anything acid core. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of us might have some of those types of solders and flux around for some plumbing projects that we might have done. And um, and if you if you use an acid core based product, your your joints and everything will turn green very quickly and will actually wind up rotting off of the uh, the rail. It'll just corrode itself right off. And you'll wind up doing the work all over again. So you want to make sure that everything that you use is rosin-based. Um, and, and most uh, most good electronic suppliers um, have that. Um, Miniatronics uh, makes uh, makes a really nice, fine electronic solder and uh, paste that's available for that and uh, works really well. There's there's a number of different products out there. Again, we were we're talking about using a 22 gauge, for example, in HO scale. Um, solid wire, and we found that solid wire works the best because you can uh, you can shape it in right into the web of the rail. Um, so your your track leads are fed off the power bus through those tap connectors, and uh, you know we we try to keep the uh, the length of them as short as we can. Twelve inches is probably like the rule of thumb. Um, you know if you if you have to go a little bit more than that for a certain area, you know I. I Try to keep it under 18 inches, but you know the longer that wire is, the possibility of having a voltage drop um, is going to be there. But 
this is why we recommend um, keeping your feeders as frequent as possible so that uh, that load is shared across your feeders so that if you do have one that's uh, a little bit longer than um, it should be, it's not going to cause uh, too many too many headaches. So we, we'd like to see them around, uh, around 12 inches in length. So if you take a look at um, on our follow-along, uh, figure 7 will be a uh, example, and uh, actually a very good example by Paul, is um, you can see how the, the feeder is bent at 90 degrees, and it's laid right into the web of the rail there, uh, which makes a nice, a nice tight fit. And um, what you're going to want to do ahead of time is to make your life easier on yourself, is kind of figure out what length your track feeder is going to be, and pre-cut a whole bunch of them. And, uh, and then you'll strip one end of them and uh, put a little bit of uh, flux on there. And then with your iron, you want to uh, take your solder and tin the, uh, tin the ends of um, all those wires ahead of time. And, and the reason we like to do that is a lot of times if, you're, if you, you're not handling track with wooden ties, which can take the heat a little bit more, um, plastic flex track, as soon as that rail heats up, you know, you wind up uh, melting ties if you're, if you're in there a little bit too long. So pre-tinning these feeders helps tremendously. Um, and then what I like to do is uh, I have a little uh, scratch brush uh, that in case, uh, you know, the, if the rail might have been around a little bit, you can, uh, you can brighten it up a little bit, take some of that oxidation off, and put a little bit of flux right inside the web of the rail there. And you, with your uh, feeder uh, wire bent at 90 degrees, you can hold that right in tight against the web there. And usually if I put a bead of solder right on the end of my, uh, my iron and bring it in there, uh, that's usually enough that um, because you get your wire pre-tinned in there, that'll uh, it'll flow pretty quickly and, uh, and bond right to the web of the rail. What do you uh, prefer on size of solder? What's the term of wattage of the soldering iron? Um, usually uh, we like to see somewhere between a 25 and 30 watt iron. Um, you can go a little bit a little bit higher. If you're going to go higher, then what we would recommend is getting um, a couple of very simple clip-on heat sinks at an electronic supply store and maybe put it uh, three or four inches on either side of where the, the tap is going to be. And that way there, if you go up against that rail with a higher wattage iron, um, the heat sinks will limit as how far that heat will travel up the rail, and it'll kind of keep it localized there. Um, but the other advantage of, of pre-tinning um, is because it helps that that solder flow pretty quickly, and you don't have to leave your iron on the uh, on the rail very long and risk melting uh, plastic ties. But uh, but I found uh, for the most part uh, about a 25 to a 30 watt iron works pretty well. How about the uh, size of solder diameter? I would say can't remember the diameter off the top of my head that I've been using, but it's it's really uh, about the diameter, just or a little bit smaller than the diameter of that 22 gauge wire. And in that way there, you can, you can use, uh, use that to get in there, and it uh, will melt and flow pretty quickly rather than having to heat up, uh, you know, a real large diameter piece of solder. It's, you know, anything that's, anything that's geared for electronic work works well. And, again, you want to make sure that you're using a rosin-based product and not an acid, acid core type solder. And then when you're all set, um, I have a little... Um, they call it an acid brush. You've seen them in a lot of the hardware stores. It's kind of a silver handle, and they're like a nylon bristle 
toothbrushes, and uh, it's fairly small. It's only maybe about a quarter to three-eighths of an inch wide. And uh, I'll dip that into um, some rubbing alcohol, splash, and rub that over the uh, determination, and that'll help clean up any of that flux. When you're all done, just uh, you know, if you've already painted your track, you just touch it up with a brush, or you know, once you go over and paint your track, that uh, that tap will virtually uh, disappear. The other option I've seen some guys do is that it's uh, it's a little bit more work, but you can actually flip your piece of flex track upside down and solder your your feeders to the bottom side of the rail and you know you'll pre-drill your holes before you lay the track and then when you lay that piece of flex track in place and you ballast you'll never find where those feeders are and you know it'll, it'll really look like a, um, a model of uh, the prototype that's an excellent idea now you bring up a good point uh do uh, the modelers need to keep in mind that if they're pre-painting their track that paint is an excellent insulator so they're going to have to, you know, be very careful to clean the paint off so they get a good electrical contact. Absolutely, and that's where I was mentioning about the little scratch brush that I uh, that I keep in my toolbox. Um, I actually got it from Micromark, and it's a small little plastic handle, and it's got a uh, stainless steel wire brush inside and you can actually feed it so as as the ends of it uh, gets you know sometimes when a wire brush they get fanned out um, you can clip those off and then there's more inside you just turn the dial on the end of it and it feeds you out some fresh uh, wire brush and it works really well if you've got to um, if you need to clean any paint off the rail. Anything else we need to know about getting power to the track? And just as a follow-up, sometimes it might be a little bit easier to do all the soldering and everything first and then let your all the slack um, hang down below. And then what you can do is now you, if there's any excess slack, you can form that into where the tap connector is going to go if you need to clip off any, and then you'll have yourself nice, um, straight, and neat um, track feeders. But uh, one thing that we, um, we've we found in what I did in my layout at home is I color-coded everything, and I, I did uh, my track bus in a color code, uh, black and red, for example, and then I used the feeders for that black and red going up to the track, so that way there, once you're done and then you go underneath, if everything's the same color, it makes it a little tough to try to, to see what, what everything is. But this way here, if you know you've got black and red, it's um, very easy to follow right through. And if you're, if let's say you've got one main line as one power district, you know, your, and your second main line might be a different power district, use a se- separate set of colors for that, um, and it will make your life significantly easier when you're, when you're down there under the bench. Now, do you guys test as you go? Because it's easy to become distracted, and all of a sudden you've hooked the red wire to the to the wrong bus wire and just created a huge short. Oh yes, um, a little trick that um, that I use: you can use an old Bell and Battery um, setup if you've got one, or a lot of um, you know good high-end multimeters have um, an audible when you're when you're testing for continuity. And just clip that onto the, um, the the rail to the power district uh, or the power bus that you're working on. And if you accidentally reverse a set of um, feeders, um, you'll know it immediately because you'll get that buzzer or the, or the tone from the meter going off, and it will save you a lot of aggravation later trying to figure out where that reversal is. This wraps up this Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it, and catch us next time on iTunes.